Hello and welcome to this special podcast from the Wolf Institute. This time we're talking about Israel-Palestine. How can British Muslims and Jews talk about the conflict? Why have discussions in the past led to so many tensions? And what can we learn from an open and honest dialogue? The Wolf Institute's We Need to Talk About Israel-Palestine event attempted to address some of these questions. The dialogue you're about to hear was recorded live in January as part of that event. It happens between Baroness Varsi, former Conservatives Minister and now Member of the House of Lords, and Jonathan Friedland, Guardian columnist and regular writer for the New York Review of Books. The discussion was chaired by the Wolf Institute's founder director and the host of this podcast, Dr Ed Kessler. And I'm going to ask Jonathan uh, to start off with um, how he feels Muslims and Jews can talk about Israel and Palestine. Even the very term Israel and Palestine is a problem, right? I think um, at the moment, you know, you said at one point, um, how do Muslims and Jews talk about Palestine? And so Israel, Palestine, I was thinking the answer to that is badly. Um, uh, or, either, or either badly or not at all. Um, so there's a kind of model of interfaith dialogue that people will be familiar with, the sort of earnest cup of tea together with religious leaders in which there is a slightly basal faulty dynamic of don't mention Israel-Palestine. There's tremendous tension, so there'll be lovely conversations about and finding points of connection, which are laudable, instantly, about you know, Ramadan and fasting and Yom Kippur and everyone will sort of... And the parallels between halal and kashrut and the issues are around um, religious observance, and there'll be lots of bonding, and everyone will think it's gone terribly well if we don't mention Israel-Palestine. And one of the reasons why I sort of warmed to your invitation, uh, Ed, initially, was I thought it is good to have this out in the open and not to sort of repress it, because often you do feel as if we're sort of dancing around it. So there's the not-at-all model, where people just avoid it, and that's one way that Muslims and Jews talk about it, which is to not talk about it. The other one is uh, to talk about it badly, and that's the one where there's very rapidly a competitional victimhood where, and you see this on social media a lot, where each side wants to have the mantle of victim and to be the, the injured party. And, uh, and not, it's not good enough to say that there is some suffering on, as it were, our side. It must be a monopoly of suffering. Our suffering is total and our suffering is worse. Uh, and you see that absolutely mirrored on both sides. So those to me are the, the, the ways in which it is currently often talked about, and, and that's to, uh, as a sort of matter of description. In terms of prescription, how I would like it to be taught, uh, talked about, I would say that my teacher in this, as in so many things, and I would have said this anyway, even if he hadn't died last month, uh, is the great Israeli novelist Amos Oz. Uh, and I wrote something about him in the New York Review just this month, and the headline they chose for it, which I thought was a very good headline, was The Radical Empathy of Amos Oz. And in the piece, I talked about what he, how he made empathy a tool of radicalism, and because it was root and branch empathy. So what do I mean by that? He brought... You know, people know two things about him. One is that he was this great novelist, and then, as if separate that he was this peace activist, a founder of the Peace Now movement, and a kind of icon, really, of progressive opinion in Israel. And he himself encouraged the view that they were somehow different, these two things, because he said, you know, I have two pens on my desk. One I pick up when I want to write a novel and a story with characters, and then another one I pick up when I want to tell my government to go to hell. 
And I read recently that they were literally two pens. One was blue and one was black. Uh, blue ink and black ink. And I've, I must pursue whether or not that's really true, but uh, that was a new detail for me. But the, so he, he would suggest these two things were separate. In fact, I think uh, they were very linked. And that's because as a novelist, you can't be a good novelist if you don't have empathy. If you cannot put yourself into the, imagine yourself into the shoes of the other person. And he had to do that as a novelist. But I think it's also why he ended up being the central figure, really, culturally, for peace and reconciliation in that, in, on the Israeli side, because he immediately, instinctively, and did it very early, long before anyone else, imaginatively put himself in the shoes of Palestinians. And uh, you know, there are obviously are some Christian Palestinians, but that's a majority Muslim population. Uh, and he began to just think, what would I think if I was in their position? And what would I say if I were them? And that, to me, is the key to hand approaching this conflict. All the time, any sentence you read, any tweet you're about to send, you just think, what if the words were reversed? What if they were saying this about us? And if you <coughs> impose that test on yourself, and if both sides impose that test on themselves, I think they could... Um, reach uh, a whole other level of dialogue. It's not to say they would immediately agree, but there would already be a level of, of deeper understanding. And so the moments that I think are tremendously sort of breakthrough moments in these conversations is are when um, somebody on one side puts themselves into the narrative of the other. And so to give two examples, the first is has ended very sadly, but it, went, it, it, it did a whole lot of good, even if it didn't come to fruition. And that is the story of the mosque in Golders Green, who were about to stage an exhibition on Muslims who saved Jewish lives in the Holocaust. And um, that was a wonderful initiative that has come aground, it said, because there were some of the organizers had family in Iran, and they feared, which is a commentary on the tragedy of this, how, uh, the despair of this conflict, they feared there would be retribution for their relatives in Iran if they went ahead. But just the thought of, of realizing that, uh, that there's, a, there's an imaginative leap going on there to think of how meaningful that would be for their Jewish neighbors in Golders Green and for other people to realize uh, uh, how central that is. And so uh, the Holocaust. And therefore, when there are moments where, and they do happen, you know, when Holocaust Memorial Day, when the Muslim Council of Britain send a message of, under, you know, of condolence. That goes a hugely long way because it's an act of empathy. And when there are, there are you know, Palestinian writers who have said to their fellow Palestinians, we have to engage with the reality of what happened in the, in the Shoah and what that has done to the psychology of our neighbors, the Israeli Jews, that goes a hugely long way. Um, on the other side, and I'm not... Want, don't want to imply there's any kind of that I'm setting up a comparison or equivalence because I now realize as I'm saying it, it may sound loaded, the, the contrast here, but it's not meant to be. I, my est estimation of former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barat leapt when he said in a TV interview in Israel that given what the Palestinians have been through, given their history, given the dispossession of 1948, of course, had I been Palestinian, he said, quote, I would have been a fighter, unquote. That's an amazing moment, it seems to me. I mean, for one thing, he was breaking out the narrative of Palestinian terrorism, etc. He used the word fighter, but also he was just 
making that imaginative leap. You think, if I had not been born Ehud Barak, um, but had been uh, born Ahmed Barakah or something, um, how I would have been, of course I would. My personality is such that I would have fought for my people. Those moments are very important, and that's what I think I would, would want us to see, is that each of these two competing nations in Israel-Palestine and the diaspora communities that stand with them put themselves in the shoes of the other, and I think that already gets us to dialogue. Empathy, say, but that's what Sir Jonathan's really saying. Mm. Um, I completely agree with uh, uh, what Jonathan has said. I think we... Uh, many, many years ago, we, um, a number of us in the House of Laws set up an initiative where we would go around university campuses. Uh, Lord Mitchell, Parry Mitchell, uh, led that uh, effort, and people like Michael Howard and Baroness Newberg, and lots of us were involved in it. And effectively, Jewish and Muslim members of the House of Lords would go around university campuses to talk about um, challenges facing both sets of students. and really trying to focus on the things that united us. And one of the things that we did was exactly what Jonathan said, which is, let's not talk about Israel and Palestine. Hmm. And so we went out to talk about Jews and Muslims, and we didn't talk about the biggest elephant in the room. And although we had some success in trying to bring some of the students together, I think we probably left leaving most students frustrated that we didn't talk about what they really wanted to talk about. Mm. Um, so I completely agree with you that most of the time we, we do a lot of this interfaith activity, well-meaning stuff. Uh, but it really doesn't touch the, the issues that really need to be talked about. And I think that leaves those relationships um, slightly shallow mm. because the depth comes from having disagreement. Um, and I also agree that when we do talk about it, we talk about, talk about it badly. Um, so, and, it just, and social networking has brought a completely new dimension to this where, mm. I mean, one of the reasons why I wrote the book, and, uh, and it's not an autobiography actually, it's a, it's a tale of Muslim Britain, so it's, a, it's, a, it's the relationship between Islam and Britain from the 7th century kind of onwards, and part of it is a lived experience, but uh, if anybody ever kind of wants to buy it, you'll realise you, you learn very little about me um, other than my childhood. And, and, and I deliberately wanted to kind of do that because I, I just felt that it, 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 there were so many issues that were so important that sometimes the personal kind of takes away from, from, from tackling some of those tough issues uh, because it becomes one person's narrative of it. Um, so when we, do, you know, when we do decide to talk about it invariably, we need space to talk about it. And that's why I use that, you know, I use the book to kind of talk about some of these issues in a way that you can't talk about even in a speech, really, I think, and certainly not on social networks. Mm. How should we talk about it? Well, I mean, uh, I'll recall a, a, a conversation that I had with uh, uh, a, a friend of mine who's from the British Jewish community, um, a very frank conversation in which I said to him that there is a, there is a way in which the Israel-Palestine uh, issue is having an impact on British, Muslim, on British Jewish and British Muslim relationships. And we have such huge challenges in the United Kingdom that we're, because we're so busy disagreeing on this, we're, we're increasingly finding it hard to find agreement on issues that we should be uh, agreed on. Um, and I was also very honest with him. And I said, you know, there is a sense from now 20 years of experience in public life um, in certain aspects of, you know, British Muslim society, there is a sense that, well, you know, you can carry on doing what you want to do, British Jewish community or Israel, but we'll just outbreed you. 
and there is a sense within British Jewish community as well, you can carry on breeding all you want, but we'll just outspend you. And, and I said this one-upmanship in the way in which I've seen politics operate at very close quarters isn't going to work. So what's the answer? And I said, the answer I want from you is, how do we see a world in which my kids or my grandkids are married to your grandkids? I said, we have to have skin in the game. And we have to have skin in the game on both sides. The second way that I would say you look at it is something that I talked about actually at the Board of Deputies now going back to 2013, I think, which is that when you point the finger you have to be pointing right back at you. It's the, way we, it's the way the almighty made us. And so I talked about one challenge within British Jewish communities, and I talked about three challenges within British Muslim communities. And if each time we point the finger, we can balance that against three pointing back at us, I think we would have a much healthier conversation. On that particular occasion, I was talking about anti-Semitism within uh, Muslim communities mm. and anti uh, and Islamophobia within British Jewish communities. Um, and I think if we did that each time, I think it would make the other feel like you weren't just pointing the finger at them. Actually, you were saying to them, yes, there are challenges here, and these are the three I'm prepared to talk to you about and acknowledge, but let's also deal with this one that mm. you have. And I just find that, that not enough of that happens. And on a very personal basis, I think it leads to you know, 2014 for me, in a way that Israel-Palestine conflict defined my politics, having never actually been part of what I call the Israel-Palestine space, I found that it's ended up defining absolutely everything about my politics because of my resignation in 2014. And one of the hardest things that I found in the run-up to that resignation um, was the number of colleagues that had slapped me on the back, you know, being a word of encouragement, being a great support, um, every time I stood up and talked about kind of violence that had been done in the name of Islam and said, not in my name, but who, in reverse, I was saying to them, all I want you to do, even if you don't say it publicly, all I want you to do is say to me, this is not being, this violence is not being done in the name of my faith. Might have been done in the name of a state or whatever, but it's not being done in the name of my faith. And, and I think that became a, a really difficult, uh, you know, I, I was looking for just those, through, those three fingers back at somebody mm. else to say, yes, you can point this finger at me and say this is a challenge, but actually at certain times I also need you to self-reflect. Um, and it's certainly a, a conversation that we're having within British Muslim communities uh, about that. The, I think the Labour Party and the Corbyn kind of... Mm. Uh, last two years has been an interesting mm. moment, and I'm sure we'll go on to that and the politics of it. But There are these stories, and they're not coincidental, that come out, and they are outside the Israel-Palestine space, of you know when Bradford Synagogue needed its roof re yeah. restored, it was Muslim communities in the area. I love those moments, and I, you know, what I particularly like is when both uh, communities realize, and I think something like it did happen on the margins, admittedly, but in the summer, when there was the discussion about Labour and anti-Semitism and there was the discussion about Islamophobia in the Conservative Party but also other political parties, there was just a little bit. You saw it on social media where people were thinking there was a connection there where you know, we know what this feels like and the two communities could see almost a um, common ground in dealing with this third group, which is those people who are neither Jewish nor Muslim, who were giving this group and the, you know, the other two communities grief. 
I have to say something. I, I, you know, I always hesitate to mention, you know, if it's going to be quoted or something because you can't be scientific about it. But it's something I've definitely noticed, which is people. When I say, um, or colleagues know that when I write on Israel-Palestine, you know, you always get, and I've had it for 25 years, a whole lot of grief. It used to be by letters, then it was email. You know, I can follow the different waves of technology, but the hate mail pattern is consistent. And um, people, often Jewish people, will often say. Oh, they, you know, they'll, they'll say it more or less euphemistically, but they assume it's from Muslim readers, commenters, and I almost, or from Arab and Palestinian ones, and I almost always say, because it's true, that that's not the case. That actually you can almost work it out that the, the least abusive correspondence I get on the Israel-Palestine conflict is from Palestinians. Palestinians do write. It's always with great... Uh, care and sort of often a lot of mutual understanding actually. The next group down in terms of the least likely to be hostile and bigoted are Muslim readers. Again is usually a degree of sort of uh, sensitivity and nuance. The groups who resort to horrible anti-Semitism, I'm sorry, are very sort of white English people who, uh, you know, who have got obsessed by the Palestine conflict who have no skin in the game, to use your phrase. And you know, they are people whose names I now know because they so frequently bombard me and are hostile. And I do think, you're not Palestinian, you're not Muslim, you have no sort of uh, reason to be so incensed by this issue and to be you know, semi-obsessed by it, but they're the ones who cross that line into bigotry and hatred. I don't know whether that's true for you, whether you, you know, whether it's, whether it's Jews who are hateful towards you or whether it's actually... Because you as, know, a, as a politician, you have a, a, a extra... Uh, yeah, my own very special bigots. Um, yes, you do develop a sort of relationship with them. Also, you do, you do actually. Like you know characters. them. So you, yeah, yeah. you kind of begin to, because you know they will always write to you or they will always tweet to you. And, and you almost feel, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's kind of a bit of a uh, enjoy the process, but I, I don't mute them and I don't block them, which I could do, because I just kind of think, oh, it's nice for them to pop up occasionally and you know, what you know they're still there. Um, in their sad bedroom, probably. Uh, so I, I suppose for me, it was the only moment where I saw it quite uniquely, again, was that moment in 2014. That moment was a, 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 a real shock because probably quite naively, I hadn't anticipated how much people would judge me by that single action. Mm. So if I take, for example, the British Muslim community, what was fascinating was having had you know, many years of being told that my skirts were too short, my tights were too thin, my hair, you know, I didn't look like, all the kind of normal kind of general abuse that you get from certain sections about not being Muslim enough. Um, I was suddenly kind of this amazing person who'd arrived and was the answer to everything Muslim. And I was a real heroine with them. And, I, and yet my religiosity had not changed when I owed to the length of my skirt had not changed, the length of my scarf had not changed. Yeah, and yet so suddenly I was lauded as this amazing heroine and, and you know, some, uh, uh, some uh, uh, amazing, you know, some great scholar around the world, and I won't <laughs> name him, named me Dukhtar Islam, which is the daughter of Islam. And I'm like, oh God, you know. It just felt like suddenly everything had changed. Reversely, in the British Jewish community, people who I had known for years and years and who I felt, you know, I could tea, dinner, knew their families, yeah. suddenly felt they couldn't speak to me. Why, let's just tease that out a little bit because you and I sat on the panel at JW3 yes. soon after that. Yeah. Were, I remember there was a fair amount of, of, of hostility. In yeah, Birkbeck. That's right. Oh, Birkbeck. Birkbeck right. it was, right. yeah. yeah. Um, now, what does that hostility tell us 
what, what, what is underneath that hostility that you know you experienced at that time? Yeah. Is it the um, obviously it, it, it ripped a plaster off in some way? Mm. You know, and what mm. does that tell us about that Muslim Jewish encounter? Because I do want to bring it back to Israel Palestine. Yeah. I don't want to yeah. get too caught up in synagogues in Bradford or in the East London yeah. Mosque. You know, and some wonderful dialogues that go on, some of the research mm. that Leah's doing in terms of Muslim Jewish women and mm. so on. But I really want to deal with this nitty issue of Israel mm. Palestine. What does that tell you about this? I mean, Birkbeck, Birkbeck was interesting because Trevor Pears mm. rang me up not after, long after that, and he said, you know, would you do this? And he said, you know, it's not going to be easy. And I, oh, I'm game for anything. And so I went along, and there were these posters. Oh, you remember, I was kind of heckled into the hall. and big audience that day. I mean, it must have been a few hundred, at least four. Yeah, it was a packed hall. Yeah, it was a whole packed hall at Birkbeck and had these huge posters which said, Baron Farsi, you're an anti-Semite and various other nice things that were said to me on the way in and, and was really kind of heckled even when I started speaking. And I think what, what suddenly, th there were two things that happened at that time. Mm. One was the barrage of letters, which actually I have now folded and put into, and I have never read again. Uh, because I think there'll be a time and a place when I will read them, maybe, but not there. And the number of letters and emails that I receive from people purporting, because that's, I'm, you know, now these days with trolls and everything else, you don't know who writes this stuff, but purporting to be British Jews, um, saying things like, you know, go back to your own country, mm -hmm. or you don't belong here, or, you know, the kind of racist terminology that you'd expect the far right to be using, and you just wouldn't expect to be used by British Jewish communities. And that I found really disturbing. Uh, you know, people can write and say, I disagree with your position, but that kind of bigotry was, was difficult. And then in Birkbeck, I think this whole sense of there's no gray area. Mm. You know, you are either with us and you're a friend of Israel, which I was, I've always defined myself as a friend of Israel, you know, always been a, a part of Conservative Friends of Israel, or, you know, visited, and, and yet you, you're either with us or now, because you've taken a position on the Gaza conflict, couldn't differentiate that position that I took as a minister at the time, um, and remember at the time, I always say this, had I been the minister for transport at that time, well maybe it would have been easy just to say, well this is another one of those issues which mm. I'm not happy with, I'm going to hold my nose and see through, but you cannot be the, the spokesman in the House of Lords, the Foreign Office Minister for Human Rights, the Foreign Office Minister for the ICC, and the Foreign Office Minister for the UN, and be signing off things for resolutions at the Human Rights Council and then say, oh, I'll just hold my nose. No, this is absolutely on. I was having to stand up and say and take responsibility for a policy position that I fundamentally didn't agree with. And the fact that people couldn't differentiate that and say, well, how you could be a friend of Israel but be fundamentally against what was happening at that time and the way in which. And again, I, th I suppose the point that I made at Birkbeck, my issue was, was not with what Israel was doing, in Palestine, my issue was my government's response to what Israel was doing in Palestine. And I consistently kept saying this, you know, countries do, countries do all sorts of things to their own citizens. You know, people have civil war. There are awful incidents going on across the world. But at that moment in time, it was, I was looking to my government, of which I was a part and I was a member of the cabinet, saying, okay, so how are we going to deal with this, guys? Just remind us what the policy was that the government had at the time in 2014. We didn't have a policy. It was, we will say nothing, do nothing, uh, pretend it's not happening and hope it will go away. So this lack of nuance, is that, is that the big issue when Muslims and Jews talk about Israel and Palestine? Uh, in moments of heat like that, yes, I think it is. When, it, when 2014 was right in the moment where the conflict was very... Well, it was happening, and you know, Israel was pounding Gaza and 
you know, racking up this huge death toll, civilian death toll, at, at the time. And so that's why the feelings ran so hot. The, um, of course, I mean, it's hard for me, because I'd forgotten about the fact that we were a member of Conservative Friends of Israel and all that. Because what I was going to say was that I suspected that the reaction, particularly in the Jewish world, tends to be different if they feel criticism is coming from somebody who accepts certain things, takes certain things as read. And I was going to draw a contrast with, as an example, why is it that the Jewish community massively distrusts Jeremy Corbyn in Britain, and yet the Jewish community in, in the United States totally has no problem with Bernie Sanders? A few people you know, fringe, but not as a community. What's the difference? Because Sanders' positions on Israel, Palestine, should be no different. And he would have condemned what happened in 2014 as vocally as you would. Mm. What's the difference? The fundamental difference is that Sanders, either whenever he speaks about it, or plenty of times in the past, has said, I believe in the state of Israel's right to exist. I have deep connections uh, with Israel. I, want to, I don't just want it to exist. I want it to flourish. Take all that. But this decision right now by this government is appalling and I can't defend it. You will never hear and have never heard Corbyn say those first bits. He couldn't say it. He doesn't feel them. So therefore, people feel, oh, okay, he's attacking what Netanyahu is doing now, but what he really feels is that the whole country should never have really existed and it's a scandal and he doesn't like anything to do with it, and therefore I'm not going to take seriously his criticism of Bibi now because I know really he's an enemy. That's, that would be in, in a capsule of the Jewish mainstream Jewish feeling about somebody like him. And the Jewish community in America does not feel that about Bernie Sanders. What I hadn't realized with you is that you'd had that sort of, you'd done the equivalent of those two or three things by being a member of Conservative Friends of Israel, in which case, really, the logic of what I was saying should have extended to you. And I'd have to go back and I you know, haven't done to what you actually said in the resignation letter and all that kind of thing to work it out. But the, the best shot I can give is that at that time, people are not thinking straight. And mm. the heat was so intense that people get like that. And they do get very um, binary. Mm. And they think either you are on this side or you're on the other mm. side. And the reason I know that is that, you know, not in the way you had it. But for, I've been writing a column in the Jewish Chronicle for 20 years, which is as long as Netanyahu, actually slightly shorter, than Netanyahu has been central in Israeli politics. And for all of that time, Consistently, I've been slating Netanyahu. You know, it's like a sort of—I don't know how the readers put up with it—but one in three. It's like a three-crop, three-field crop rotation system. One in three JC columns will be me attacking Netanyahu, right? For 20 years, I've been doing this, and uh, you can—you know—like people waiting for a bus. You know, a, a Jonathan Friedman anti-BB column will be coming along soon enough. There were plenty of people in the Jewish community who could not stand that and accused me of everything, including. You know, the mild end traitor, but the terrible stuff of capo and all the Nazi language and everything. Uh, Self-hating, all that abuse happened uh, for a long, long time. And my moment, which you were saying, like the reaction you got after when you were hailed as a daughter of Islam and everything, was I, I was on Question Time, first time I'd ever been on that program, when George Galloway was on. And the subject of anti-Semitism <laughs> came on. And the logic of the question compelled me to confront George Galloway. I had to do it, and I did it. 
And I was, happened to be in the synagogue, you know, it's on Thursday night. So I was in the synagogue the Saturday morning afterwards for a friend's bar mitzvah. Hero. And it was as if I was the chief rabbi. You don't want to be the chief rabbi. It was, I was sort of hailed, exactly as you've been saying. And ever since then, it's mm. interesting, the criticism of me, when I still make all the same criticisms mm. of the Israeli government, is changed in character because the attitude is okay he says all these things but we know that when it comes to it mm. he's on our side sort of mm. thing and i wonder if there and needs really to be a bit of that i was gonna say know. that's really fascinating i mean two things first of all birkbeck the positive of birkbeck was having had this real humdinger of a kind of discussion i would say that the number of people who came up to me afterwards and said i am so glad i came i'm so glad i heard from you firsthand right. it's changed the way i think right. i would probably say if i went in probably with a 70 80 percent hostile audience I, I probably came out with a at least a 70 percent favorable audience right. i mean there was that much of a shift and i sensed that from people who actually and a couple of people actually came over and apologized and said i really shouldn't behave like that on the way in and i think it was that sense of heat so i think where you are prepared to I and mean, i was very honest about you know the conversations we talked about what does it mean to be a friend of, of yeah. israel what does it mean and i talked about my own connections to pakistan what does it mean to be um a, a, a friend of pakistan i think in terms of um what you've just said about giving you that space. What, what in a way that 2014 decision did for me was, in, so, in terms of the conversations that I was having within British Muslim communities on really difficult issues, probably straying quite close to theology, suddenly I was given so much bandwidth. And one of the things that I did, for example, in the book, there's a chapter called, simply called The Muslims, which yeah. critiques, you know, I talk about my, I say my dear co-religionists, we, you, we're not terrorists, but are we fit for purpose? Uh, for Britain, I think it was 2016 I was writing it. And I could never have landed that 10 years ago. And the fact that I landed it without a peep in 2016 meant that in a bizarre kind of way, it made me so much more effective yeah. on issues that really kind of mattered to me. Internally. 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 Because you had fought the good because fight it was, externally because, when it counted. Because I think it was that sense that, that you got from people to say, oh, when push comes to shove, she stood in the right place on these issues. Yeah. So whatever he writes about and criticizes the Jewish community or Israeli politics, actually when it came down to it, he stood in the right place. So I had a, that, that was my similar moment again, Absolutely. which allowed me the space within, and, and also allowed me the space to talk about the issues of anti-Semitism. See, this is, a, it is related to Israel Palestine. I think it's such an important point, this, um, about how we talk about it. If Muslims in Britain want to criticize it's about partly how you can criticise, as it were, the other side and then also your own side. So I had a dialogue with Mehdi Hassan that, a few years ago, the you know, very eminent journalist who now lives in America. And he and I talked about some of the stuff we're talking about now. And one thing we realised that was we hadn't realised until the discussion started, which was something quite unusual, which is, first of all, there are, there are not many prominent Muslim commentators in the British press, so we should say that for starters, and there are more Jews uh, who write columns and things than there are Muslims in the national press. But within that, with that sort of qualifier, what was unusual was that both of us are people rooted in our own communities, right? So he does fast during Ramadan, and I, you know, often am in a synagogue, you know? We know the, the terms here, and very, there are many people, you can point to Jews and you can point to Muslims, who take on some of these, and they're not rooted actually in their mm. communities, and they don't know what's going on sort of week by week, and yet sound off and speak on behalf mm. of them. We don't need to name names, but we can both think mm. of people in both. Mm. 
it means that it, buy, it does buy you that space and that sort of credibility to say some very harsh things to your own mm. community. And, but you need to think of, going back to our muscles and empathy, you need to make the equivalent move with, I think, the other side. So, you know, I don't think um, it would, you know, I, I, I wouldn't feel able to write some whole sort of denunciation of, say, corruption in the Palestinian Authority if I hadn't also, you know, over a period of years consistently made it absolutely plain that I am fierce in my denunciation and condemnation of the occupation, that I think there should be and needs to be and must be a Palestinian state, etc., etc., etc. But similarly on the Jewish side, you know, I can lay into the Israeli government because people do know that I do not regard the creation of the State of Israel as a, a black day in history in the way that I think, as I suggested, I think Jeremy Corbyn does. Um, and I think that's why he doesn't get listened to. Uh, and that I was in a moment of need, which is how the Jewish community perceived that moment. It's ridiculous by comparison, you know, a TV moment with George Calloway. But they did think in a moment of need he was there to defend us. So I think it's, as part of your opening question, which was how can we talk about this, we can talk about it better if we have some sense of sort of anchoring in our own communities. And I think people mm -hmm. listen to mm -hmm. you um, in 2014 and in other times because they know you're of this mm. community and you're rooted in it mm. and it's certainly how I hear you when I hear you speak on these things and it was how I hear Media Sun whereas some of the other sort of people mm. we could think of you don't really feel mm. that and I mm. would hope the same is true mm. uh, for me on that side. I was going to just mention one other thing going okay. right to that to the beginning but go on you go there. Right I'd like to open it up to the floor for a couple of brief comments questions. You both talk about your communities and one issue which complicates it probably is that neither community is homogenous. Um, there is a spectrum from left to right or more rigid and more open in both communities, I think. And, and you are probably both proponents of a, a more rational approach to these issues, while communities probably hide a lot of irrational thoughts and, and mm. people. So. That's just a further level of complexity, I think, to the dialogue. Hi, thank you so much. It was really insightful. Um, actually, I think one thing maybe we're missing from this discussion um, is the problem that a lot of people seem to have whenever the Israeli state is critiqued. Um, and I actually think one really big underlying issue in all of this in this dialogue is that deep-rooted nationalism, which is the cause for so much of this violence. I think just as Muslims should definitely critique Saudi for the corruptedness of it and still hold that it has Mecca and Medina and this religious significance that's completely separate from critiquing the state. I think the same thing needs to happen when we talk about Israel. And actually we've seen this all over social media and public figures having to apologize for critiquing Israel. And I think there is a sense of where you can say, yes, Israel exists and we have to accept it. And it has been accepted and they have a reason for that existence, but that does not mean we cannot critique the state. Mm. And I think that's the next step here now. Okay, thank you. One more, and then we'll come back to the experience. Mm. Just sort of perhaps adding to the first comment, I think that there's often a big problem in the Israel and Palestine conversations in the UK of utter lack of knowledge of the people involved in those um, conversations about the context um, of the conflict, about wider social issues and so on. And I wondered if you had any ideas about you know, whether the 
I agree that empathy is, um, is a way forward, but it in a way takes out the local protagonists from the conversation and removes it even further from actually understanding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict rather than imagining it projected onto ourselves. I mean, if we can take the question about communities first, um, you're absolutely right, they're not homogenous communities, and in fact, I spend a lot of time in the book explaining that, that uh, certainly for Muslim communities, even more diverse, ethnically diverse, and. Uh, religiously diverse, theologically diverse, then and, and a much bigger community. Uh, so therefore, many therefore many many different parts to it. But I think what I would say is that you, if you are rooted in your communities, and when I say that, we're not just talking about the town that I live in or the village or the city. We're, I'm talking about having contact across the United Kingdom with people from different ethnic backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, different theological uh, um, beliefs, very conservative. I mean, you know, when I, when, when I was writing, I was speaking to the ultra-conservative and the ultra-liberal uh, within Muslim communities. And I think that you get a sense for where, where communities stand. And I think certainly on the Israel-Palestine issue, whether you're ultra-conservative or ultra-liberal, there is a sense about concern around the injustices being done to the Palestinian people. So I think when you speak on this issue, you speak fairly kind of authoritatively that the vast majority of people yeah. would stand in this space. Yeah. And I think you've probably said the same in terms of the Jewish community as well. Um, a couple of questions. I, I think the, um, the question that was raised in relation to the state of Israel, so the way that I talk about this is, I don't, I don't like to talk about the, sta the problems with the state of Israel, because that suggests that there's a problem with the state of Israel. I talk about the problem with the Israeli government, uh, because the current Israeli government is appalling. And just like you can have governments across the world which can be appalling, uh, I like to, because you could end up with a leader, although it doesn't look likely with where the election, where the you know, candidates are coming out, you could end up with a leader, you could end up with a, a prime minister in Israel who is a great prime minister and will actually try and move towards solving these issues. And so therefore, I see it very much as a political issue. And the example that I use, actually, which not everybody agrees with, so my parents, um, my grandfather uh, originated from Pakistan. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I talk about is there was a country created in the 40s as a homeland for a specific group of people, uh, but with lots of other minorities allowed to stay in there, and it was a bit of a screw-up by the Brits. And, yeah. and, and I say, you know, I'm talking about Pakistan. I'm talking, and, and, and actually, there are so many parallels yeah. between the creation of the state of Israel That's and the creation good. of the state of Pakistan. The differences are, of course, you didn't get Pakistanis from all over the world coming to this homeland, but you did get Pakistanis from that region, you know, Muslims from that region moving towards creating a homeland. And in many ways, the, the, the mistakes that were made in Pakistan, you know, if you go back to its founding tenets uh, about it being a homeland for the Muslims of South Asia, but with equal rights for the other minorities, we did the first bit, we didn't do the second bit. In Israel, it was exactly the same. We did the home, homeland for the Jewish people, and then you know, we didn't really do the rest of it. And I think there are so many interesting ways in which the move towards extremism, the move towards nationalism, the disregard, the implementation within law, the, the, the recent law, in, in, and also with the blasphemy laws in, in Pakistan in the 80s, the way in which we introduced laws which then um, further created problems, uh, the way in which certain bits of that country still feel kind of marginalized, the dispute on the line of control with Kashmir, the constant skirmishes, the disputes on the line of control. I mean, there are so many similarities. 
and, and I think in a way that allows us to step away from the, the kind of sometimes trauma. And, and interestingly, again, there is a, there is a movement um, within India of a greater India, uh, a nationalist movement of encompassing and making it one whole state that belonged to India, just like there is a movement, in, and, and less so now, but was in the Arab world of a greater Arab world and a kind of encompassing and, of, and bringing and actually you know, getting rid of the state of Israel. So I always say to people, let's not even talk about the concept of a state of Israel. The three big issues for me when I talk about what's happening in Israel and Palestine, uh, one of them has got to be about human rights. You know, I'm a human rights lawyer. For me, first and foremost, you know, people say to me, did you resign because you were a Muslim? And I said, well, no, I resigned because it should have been obvious to any idiot that I was a human rights lawyer. I, was, I mean, I wasn't going to, I was a human rights lawyer with the minister, as the minister for human rights, who believed in it, didn't just think, God, this was a holding job. Mm. And actually, therefore, did you, were you, you shouldn't have been surprised in any way that I didn't stand and say, I'm prepared to support this. So I always look at it from a human rights principle. And I, one of the arguments that I used to make within the Foreign Office, when I was Foreign Office Minister, was that uh, you know, we, should, we, should we should do the equivalent of a blind tasting. Uh, in, in my real world, one of the businesses that I'm involved in is we develop ingredients. And we take different ingredients from different companies, and we put them on product, and we blind taste them to work out you know, which chicken or which fish tastes great. And we don't know which our product is. And, and so therefore you go in in completely blind to test it against what you think are a set of measures that you want the product to come up to. I kept saying in the Foreign Office we should blind, do the equivalent of blind tasting countries. In the, in, in, and, and you would very quickly find out that our friends are not particularly, our, do not accord with our principles and our values. So I took the human rights matrix and I would put it over countries like Israel and Saudi Arabia and Iran and everybody else and I would say, do they fit? And, and one of the things is that we need to apply those human rights, that human rights matrix consistently. So one of the things I talked about again in the book is, you know, human rights at the moment, sadly, within foreign policy making in the UK is, I, I said it's a dish that we serve as a, as a, it's a, it's a cold dish that we serve as a main meal when our foes come to town and we stick it in the back of the larder when our friends are in town, right? So we kind of, we only have human rights where we feel that it, it serves a purpose rather than the fact that we believe in it. The second issue that I talk about in terms of Israel and Palestine is the, right, the equal rights of citizens. Uh, so it's something that I talk about a lot in Pakistan. As somebody who's talked about equality within the UK, as a minority within the UK, I consistently talk about equal rights for minorities. And I spend a lot of my time talking about the rights of Christians, the rights of Hindus, the rights of minority sects within Pakistan, and do it very, very openly. Even though when I was in the Foreign Office, I was advised not to talk about the B word, blasphemy. And I did, because I feel that you're a hypocrite. If you, could, if you talk about minority rights for me, I'm all right, Jack, here, but not minority rights where you may also have connections. And I could talk about a minority covenant. And I say that one of the most powerful ways in which you can talk about the rights of minorities. You know, when a, when a British Muslim of Pakistani descent talks about Britain, uh, talks about Pakistani Christians on, in the context of a minority kind of covenant, it's very powerful because you're not speaking just for your own type, you're speaking for the rights of minorities. So I think that's the other thing I talk about a lot, that actually long before we get onto the Israel-Palestine issue, when I've visited Israel, some of the most harrowing moments for me have been about... Arabs in Israel. And there isn't that consistency of approach in terms of equality of rights. And the recent laws, I think, have, have made it worse. Um, and the third, really, has got to be about international, human, uh, international law 
It's a framework of international law. We've got to go back to that. You know, we cannot have a situation where we just disregard uh, international law and the application of it. I totally agree with your response to the two questions. I'm, I'm, I was going to say almost exactly the same thing. So to your uh, very good, I want the lady to read it. I'm talking about your very good um, <coughs> question. Uh, I have exactly Saeed's reaction. I think state isn't the right word. And government is a much better word to use uh, for all the reasons I just said. Um, it goes to this point about signalling, even quite subtly, that yes, you accept the existence of the country as legitimate, but you want to criticise what's going on now, or what's even gone on for the last, in the case of the occupation, you know, 52 years. Um, but if you say state, it will sound as if you're saying the whole thing is illegitimate in your right. Because if somebody had a problem with Theresa May's Brexit policy, they wouldn't talk about the British state. They would say, this government is making a mess of Brexit. Mm -hmm. If you said British state, it would sound like people who want there not to be a British state somehow. Uh, it doesn't come up often. But in the case of the Israel-Palestine thing, because there is a question around the legitimacy of its existence, and because Israelis, but also Jews around the world, feel insecure about this point, it makes them tense, almost. It makes them think, you're not now, you're somehow denying my and therefore their ears close. They won't hear the points you're making about the occupation or the illegal settlements or human rights violations because they think you've got some larger project. So it's a really good way, partly just in terms of tactically being effective, these little signals that you accept the thing. That's why my Bernie Sanders point, you know, there are ways to just signal it, and this difference between state and government is a perfect uh, example of it. Uh, your point about uh, communities, etc. I think Saidi was exactly right. It's an unfashionable view because the more fashionable thing is to say communities and it's tremendously diverse opinion. The reality of these, both of them, I think, so I'll leave Saeed's judgment of Muslim community opinion, but there is such thing as a kind of mainstream community. So let me criticise, in the spirit of self-criticism, the Guardian newspaper, for example. There'll be, there's a group of people, about 100 Jewish people, I literally could name every single one of them, who write letters to the Guardian periodically saying there's big range of views within the Jewish community because there's also us who are fundamentally anti-Zionist and don't think there should be a state of Israel, etc. And that shows you there's no such thing as a Jewish mainstream view. There's thousands of views. No, actually there's 350,000 Jews and there are these 200 people. Now, I'm putting it very crudely. Maybe there's a few thousand of them, but there isn't a mainstream view and there is a mainstream opinion. The f you've got to be forced to, force yourself to reckon with the mainstream of that community. And that's why it goes back to my point about the, the talking to people who are anchored in that community. So, you know, I could find a Muslim who would agree comfortably uh, with, you know, the sort of Board of Deputies position, but they wouldn't be reflective of the Muslim community in Britain. Similarly, you could find a Jewish person who will sign up for uh, a very comfortable, who would be applauded in a room, a room full of... Uh, uh, of British Muslims, but they wouldn't be representative of the Jewish community. But I do think there are some sort of basic do's and don'ts that both sides could really, both communities could take, and it will really make the conversation more valuable. And that's what I, where I was going. I think the state government one is a really useful one. I think don't handpick, cherry pick your favourites who will tell you what you think. And so it's really, you know, it's it's sort of irritating and worse when, you know to go back to that, but Labour, I do have their hand-picked favourites, this idea of the Jewish voice for Labour thing. Here's group people who will echo what we say. So we're going to say they're the authentic representative. You know, you've got to really get how sort of offensive that is, and I think there is a Muslim equivalent. But the, um, the sort of third area I was going to say is this notion 
of um, making uh, clear what to you is a red line and what isn't. So I think, I've been saying it as if addressing you there, that you need to sort of signal that you do accept, in effect, that the state exists, but all the rest of the conduct is fair game. I've been saying that to you as somebody, I'm presuming, as not Jewish, but equally Jews themselves have got to do that. They've got to accept that as long as, you know, um, the person isn't attacking what for them is a red line, which is, let's say in this case, Israel's right to exist, then the rest of the criticism is legitimate. And it may not always be pleasant to hear it, but you do need to hear it. And uh, that will be conduct since 1967. It's conduct today. It's everything the Israeli government does. I was encouraged by your hope that the, you know, there could at least theoretically be a decent prime minister come out of Israel. I feel we haven't seen one for at least two decades. Uh, you know, Barak is the last one, and maybe even further back to Rabin, who actually wanted to make peace. But that is very important that Jews themselves have to take yes for an answer. So if people are saying, look, my issue here is not with Israel's existence, it's with its conduct, you have to be able to hear that. And you, I think, in 2014 were not given the hearing you should have done. I now, when you were talking, it reminded me, I was trying to think, what was exactly, among even reasonable people, their grievance against you, given you've said conservatism? And I now, it's come to me, it's not my view, but I'd be interested to hear your response to it. I think the beef people had with you was, you've resigned because here's the British government not condemning a government that is committing terrible human rights violations. There are so many governments that are allies of the British government that commit appalling human rights violations, and yes, you've condemned them, like Saudi Arabia, but you didn't resign. And therefore, that's the, this is the sort of singling out thing. And this is a real, you know, um, sort of, uh, I don't want to say obsession, but it's a, it's a sore spot for, for the Jewish community, which is the mm. idea... We know Israel's behaving badly, but there are all these other countries doing terrible things. And for some reason, you know, stop the war. Don't organize 50,000 people outside the Syrian embassy, even though literally 700,000 people are dead. But at 1,500 dead, every death absolutely appalling in Gaza, and suddenly you can't move in Trafalgar Square. What exactly is that about? Mm. And I think you were, you were tarred with that a bit because mm. people thought mm. Saudi Arabia is literally chopping people's heads mm. off. Mm. And you, you know, you, you told us you condemned it, but you didn't resign. And mm. I think that's perhaps why you didn't get the hearing and, you should have done. And I think what was what was really interesting at that time. So for, let me give you an example. When I when I went to the when I went to Saudi Arabia as a foreign office minister, yeah. I was told that certain topics were off limits, and and so I kind of said, fine, that's great advice. But when I got there, I raised those issues. And I raised those issues because I felt that I had the space to be able to raise those issues in a way that I probably wouldn't have wouldn't offend in the way that, say, maybe one of my white male colleagues would have offended. Yeah. And so when we're sat in Mecca, uh, in the grounds of the Holy Mosque with the the Mufti of the Great Mosque, I actually felt I had the space to be able to have a conversation on yeah. the rights of minorities in a way that I probably, you know, if one of my white male colleagues had done it in Jeddah, it wouldn't have been as acceptable. Yeah. And so one of the things that I talked about during, so remember that this was going on for weeks and weeks beforehand. And the challenge that I had was, and I kept saying this to the Prime Minister and had lots of kind of informal and formal conversations with him. I said, look, I understand the reality of not being able to say something publicly, but I also understand the sophistication of private conversations. And what happened, so even in Saudi Arabia, where we've been quite publicly kind of shtum, and say the, uh, the Emiratis, we've been quite silent within public, privately there have been some really harsh conversations. Yeah. 
And during 2014, those private harsh, harsh conversations didn't take place. And the arguments I was making to my colleagues were, you know, when I, the, the three things that I was told to avoid in Pakistan was blasphemy, women right, women's rights, and corruption. And, and on my three board. visits, I did a keynote speech on all three. And I said, because as a friend of Pakistan, I feel that I have the space to be able to, I mean, what does a friend do? A friend, a friend tells you quite genuinely when actually you're going down the wrong path yeah. and this is self-harm and you really shouldn't be doing it. What and would I, have happened what if I wanted, you had said at that time, I want to fly to Israel, I want to go to Tel Aviv and I want to make that speech? Wouldn't have happened. Wouldn't have happened. Did but, you try? Did, yeah, I, no. I mean, I'm not, I'm not I'm yeah. telling this as if I'm sort yeah. of, I understand what you were saying, I don't have a yeah. problem with it. I'm just trying to channel the Jewish Chronicle reader, yeah. would, if they were here now, would yeah. be saying, did you try to do that? And if you had tried to do that and they, you know, and they actively said no to you, we understand yeah. why you resigned. Yeah. But if you didn't at least ask to do yeah. that, then why? So I, so I felt that I was the wrong person to do that, but I felt that there were certain people like Michael Gove and George Osborne we and others, Liam Fox, who were really great friends of Israel, had a huge amount of credibility and bandwidth there, yeah. who should have been saying, this is one for me to field, who should have been on that plane, going out there. Because one of the things that, I remember at the time when I resigned, one of the things that George Osborne said was that it was unnecessary for her to resign. Mm. And I absolutely agreed with him. I said, had he done the necessary, it would have been unnecessary for me to resign. And at yes. that point, what I expected George, and actually David, because David's relationship with Bibi was quite strong. And remember, Andrew's relationship, Andrew Feltman, my co-chairman's relationship. So we had a very, very strong uh, CFI connection and, and relationship with Israel. Yeah. If there was anybody, Labour couldn't have done it, if there was anybody that could have picked up that phone and said, whoa, guys, you know, not think, don't think this is a great path. This is a, you know, from a pure selfish perspective, this is self-harm. You should not be going down this route. And we can't say this publicly, but we require you so to. This is interesting. If those people had said, what you're doing is legitimate in the sense you're allowed to do it, but it's unwise, let's say Osborne or Gove had said that, because mm. I think that's sometimes their position. They, they, mm. They're not in the, you know, the left position would be, you've got no right to do this. Mm -hmm. The other position is, so you have got the right to do mm -hmm. it. A country can defend itself or all that, but mm -hmm. it's stupid to be doing it's unwise mm. would that have been enough for you so i think that so there's a difference between legitimacy and wise to do it and for me it would be for me it would be every country has a right to defend itself but there are parameters within which you do that and are you actually exceeding those parameters and i absolutely believe they were mm. so it was disproportionate mm. so and i think that for me would have been them saying guys what you're doing right now is is disproportionate and and i just didn't see that and i think for me it wasn't just the issue of what was happening at that moment in time it was the fact that uh, at the time you'll recall that we had a resolution that went to the human rights council for accountability for any war crimes that may have been committed on either side actually mm. which was why we insisted on having mm. a balanced resolution and we abstained on it mm. And I think that was the moment where I thought, if we cannot even, even do, that, do yeah. that, then actually, are, are you making any difference whatsoever? And at the time, I think, I mean, I talk about this in my book a little bit. At the time, the, the, very, the very rational uh, argument to it was, we have to do this and we seem to be supporting publicly because we have to build up our political capital to be able to use it to stop Israel from doing things like extending settlement building. I've just thought of one other thing, sorry, which was yeah. in response to what you said. Your Pakistan thing is so interesting to me because you don't hear that angle often. And I think it's very, very interesting and useful. And one of the reasons why it's so valuable is, and it goes to what we've just been talking about, is it cuts against this notion of unique special case. Because I think that is one of the things that sort of pro-Israel people, very broadly defined, do bulk at, 
is the notion of Israel being singled out. It's unique as if it's the only country in the world. I mean, you made the point absolutely rightly that the discrimination against Israel's Palestinian citizens is unacceptable to you. But absolutely it is. And, you know, again, Jewish Chronicle columns ad nauseam where I've made this point. But it's so not the only case. And you look around the whole neighborhood, every country is discriminating against its religious minorities, mm. unfortunately. And yet a lot of people only get their kind of exercise mm. when it's Israel doing it. So it's very, very useful, even if it's just as a sort of an aside, mm. to mention a case like Pakistan, because you could go on Twitter and believe truly the only country in the world where there mm. is any racism mm. or any discrimination left. Every other country is basically now, you know, Norway. But the one country where there's still a bit of bad human behavior is Israel. If you were online, spend on, 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 any time online, that would soon emerge from those mm. people. And I think it's very, very helpful for, for, mm. you, know, for you to mm. mention that Pakistan parallel. For that so I'm going to interrupt you because we are drawing, drawing to a close. Wow. Um, Gosh. It's a good sign. Oh, I and really I think good sign. Um, uh, I'd like the two of you, because you have so effectively showcased how to dialogue and talk about these issues and doing it in the presence, sorry, yeah. in the presence of uh, um, 80 or 90 people um, has been really, from an educational learning opportunity from the Wolf Institute's perspective, incredibly helpful. And I would be interested to ask you what you have learned from this last hour and a half in terms of what you've heard each other happen to say specifically about the questions to do with Israel and Palestine. Um. I think first that an hour and a half is not enough um, and that we could go on like this for many more hours. Uh, that actually perception and reality is still a huge issue. So even as two, I would consider fairly informed people, we don't know enough about what the other person actually stands for and we're still kind of... I think the myth about who that person is or what their views are is far stronger than the reality of who that pe person is. Um, the fact that actually... British, and I've said this many times before, that British Jews and British Muslims have a unique opportunity to make things better, mm. but also, I think at the moment, I'm making things worse. Um, it's, you know, I, I, I would say that those relationships are probably far more fraught now than they have been. And for me, increasingly, and you'll, you'll find this, I haven't spoken about the Israel-Palestine issue for many, many, many months now mm. because I feel that the bigger challenge that we have is the impact that that conversation has on, on British Muslims and British Jewish, uh, and Jewish, uh, British Jews and British Muslim, British Jewish relationships. Um, and I think if I'm going to end on a final point, it would be this, because I'd like people to kind of go away and think about it. One of the things that I worry about a lot is uh, obviously the rise of the far right, um, the, the kind of breaking down, I think, of, of what we thought was a positive direction of race relations, um, and about the connection between minority communities and the far right. And it's something that I find most difficult to talk about. I've started having conversations with members of the British Jewish community, but where, but the, the, the the unholy alliance of certain elements of Israeli uh, society and the far right mm. in Europe um, is, is become, becoming kind of incredibly dangerous. And the way that that impacts on free, future British Muslim leadership, 
I think is 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 quite soul destroying for me. Yeah. And I consistently keep saying this, you know, from the Henry Jackson Society, people like Alan Mendoza, Claudia, all of that stuff. I keep saying to them, I'm 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 sick of seeing I'm sick of seeing Israeli or British Jewish fingerprints anywhere near far right activity. And I think in the end, I think in the short term it will damage British Muslims. In the long term, I think it will damage British Jews. So there are two points there. There's the sort of the concern, and then you began really saying it's the um, thinking about or learning about the perceptions and the reality, yeah. Yeah. Um, and how different they are. Jonathan. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's an interesting one. I, that, certainly, I would put, just on that last thing about the links to the far right, that's certainly on the charge sheet against Netanyahu. And, you know, the very latest of my Jewish Chronicle rants against Netanyahu is all about exactly that, his indulgence of Orban and the other people. Yeah. The notion of British Jewish links to that, I, 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 you mentioned a couple of examples. I don't think that's as big as you're saying, but Israel certainly, and it's a big problem. So what would I take from this, I, my eyes were open very much by sides parallel with Pakistan and India. I think, it's, I mean, obviously I knew about the historical coincidence, but the idea of sort of using it the way you've used it, it's a very eye-opening, and I think that's fruitful and something maybe, you know, both of us in one way or another could do again. The second sort of worry I've had is this has worked, in, in our case, because of partly our own position. So you're somebody who didn't have a problem being a member of Conservative Friends of Israel, I'm somebody who, from the very beginning of the whole conversation, has said the occupation is wrong and can't be defended. What would happen if this was a dialogue between somebody who would never give, you know, utter the word Israel, and such people exist, um, and then the um, and, and people on my side, who you know, the Jewish people who would defend the occupation, say it's not an occupation, that it's Judea and Samaria and belongs mm -hmm. to the Israel. Mm -hmm. You know, you and I have managed a really good and constructive dialogue, but in a way, you know, we are. With, we're, we're absolutely within the mainstream of our communities. Mm. I really insist on that. We are. We're both anchored in our communities. But, you know, you will struggle to find, I will find, struggle to find someone, I, you know, perhaps more amenable than you and vice versa in terms of you finding someone. So the, we can definitely do it, but is it a case that the mainstreams of our communities have got an even bigger well, bridge to the thing? And then the very last, sorry, oh, that yes. was the last thing. Good. Um, the last thing I've realised, which I think is an important bit of self-criticism in terms of the Jewish community, is I realise... I staked out to you, and in answer to your question, a position which was as long as you accept this is legitimate, the basic foundations, then you can say what you like. And what I realized in Saida's case is that you kind of did that, and yet you were still monstered anyway. And so I sort of think the Jewish community has to walk the walk on this. If we're saying to people, look, as long as you accept Israel's legitimacy, you can really say what you like, we have to actually follow through with that. And, you know, your the your experience, very painful one, in 2014 suggests the Jewish community isn't really living that properly. So I think that's a lesson to learn. You've been listening to a podcast by the Wolf Institute featuring Baroness Farsi, Jonathan Friedland and Ed Kessler. For more information on events at the Wolf Institute, head to our website and find more of our podcasts at wolfpods.wordpress.com. <laughs>